Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. M-S-W Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, August 11th, 2023. Today we have a very special episode of the Daily Beans. I am joined by a veteran of national media. She was the host of Marketplace Tech on NPR and she began covering climate tech all the way back in 2018. And now she has a new podcast called Everybody in the Pool and it's a podcast about climate solutions. So let's welcome Molly Wood. Hi, Molly. Hi, Allison. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you about this podcast that you're working on. It comes out every week, every Wednesday, wherever you get your pods. And the thing I love the most about it is that, you know, right now, obviously, we're in the middle of, of a, a climate crisis. We have been for a very long time, but now we've got these massive heat waves and record temperatures in the ocean. We've got these massive storm events, thousand-year floods instead of hundred-year floods. And I hear a lot of complaining out there and I hear a lot of people covering it. But the thing that I love about your show is that it has actual practical solutions that we can do, that we can, like actions we can take 
to help do our part. So talk a little bit about why you wanted to to launch this podcast. Thank you. I'm glad that you're enjoying the premise. And it was exactly for that reason. I was overwhelmed. I had spent a long time, you know, I've spent 25 years in journalism and journalism is very good at presenting a problem to you. I would argue that we have gotten addicted as journalists to presenting that. I actually call it problem porn. Like we have this sort of obsession with there's this really big problem and there's this really, and this is an even bigger problem. And here are all of the ways in which this is a problem. And for normal people, I think the question often becomes, and like, listen, I grew up in the Northern Plains. I only know how to just work hard and fix stuff. And so my question was, well, who's working on this? Because there has to be someone. Humans are pretty good at surviving and people must be trying to figure out how we're going to survive this and what we're going to do and how we're going to fix it. And so I just wanted to basically do the opposite of what I've always done as a journalist and present solutions instead of problems. That's really, I like that problem porn. We see it, we see rage farming, we see, you know, people just trying to get clicks and eyes. Uh, We know that, you know, we know this. Facebook testified to Congress that, you know, they gave seven times the weight to an anger reaction than a like or love reaction that just sells that kind of rage, that fear, that por- that problem porn really does sell. And so this, I like the solution porn myself. I think I'm, <laughs> I'm with you on that. Uh, let's talk about what led us here, because we've got a lot of, a, a long history of Republicans turning the climate into a culture war. And it's sort of come to a head more recently with this whole idea of wokeism or virtue signaling. But I mean, they have been calling this a hoax for the longest time. And I, th- I think we know why. Yeah. The answer is a whole lot of money from the fossil fuel industry. I mm-hmm. mean, if you look at, you know, it's just the data. It is just simple math and charts, which is that for decades now, all the way back to, I would argue, it really ramped up at kind of the George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, actually. That's the administration that put into place because they were starting to have serious warnings from the Secretary of State's office about the potential economic calamity, like national security costs of climate change if these, you know, now well-known predictions were to come to pass. That's the administration that said, okay, well, every four years we need to do a federally mandated national climate assessment and look at what's happening here. And you saw fossil fuel spending and donations start to go up and up and up and up and up to Republican candidates. And you saw the messaging change over time. And then you're absolutely right that with the Trump administration, it was in 2018 that one of those nationally mandated climate assessments came out. And instead of any kind of, you know, previously we'd had these kind of economic arguments or, well, well, you know, the science is in doubt or, well, I don't know when we need this and we need that. He just said, I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And then it became religion. It just stopped being anything to do with any argument at all other than, nope. And if you like it, you're a woke weenie. Yeah, I think that it took a, a lot of damage during uh, the Trump administration. They they started pulling the use of the word climate change or climate crisis off of all the government websites. You weren't even allowed to use the phrase in any government documents. And and the odd thing here is that, you know, going back to, like you said, HW with the, with the four-year, every four-year climate assessment, 
The military has been very on top of this very early on, recommending, you know, hey, if we don't do something or mitigate something, we might have to move bases in Virginia, Norfolk, Florida, like Jacksonville. They've been talking about this and preparing for it because of science for a very, very long time. And it was just all stripped. The language was stripped out during the Trump years. And now it's become an actual, like vaccines and masks. It's become politicized. The science has become politicized. And and so in the face of that, I mean, you know, we've got some amazing stuff in the Inflation Reduction Act for climate. We've got this, this brilliant sort of union and labor and and jobs, green jobs, clean jobs, teaming up with the unions, making our steel in the United States, which is much better for the environment as opposed to buying it from China, et cetera. I mean, just everything that they can possibly think of now in the Biden administration has a bottom line of how does this impact the climate? But how has it impacted us as people who can also do things? Because I mean, there's a lot more of us than there are presidents. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. And all of those things that you said are so true and so impactful. Like we should not underestimate, even for a second, the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act and frankly, the CHIPS bill and the infrastructure bill. All of them contain massive investment in R&D and, and you know, climate action and deployment and decarbonization technologies. And it's incredible. And also, it is very common for people to say, well, I, this isn't a problem. This is a collective problem. And so there's nothing I can do about it. And to sort of say, I, we need businesses and government to do to fix this. To which I say, what do you think a collective is made up of? <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, this is like my framework for problem solving is everybody in the pool. There is something you don't have to do everything. You know, nobody has to be. I am not applying climate purity tests to myself or anyone in my life or anybody out there, but everybody can do something. And in fact, that's how you end up moving. You know, the, the, I keep saying that the kind of response to this question of, you know, woke, like ESG investing, right? Woke investing or whether climate is a woke thing. The answer to that over and over is capitalism, frankly. Right. Like if you want to rebut You shouldn't have to because there is no argument contained in the word woke, right? It is meaningless and is meant to stop you from talking. But if you were going to engage, you would say, okay, well, um, if you are doing business in a way that is sustainable, most likely you're more efficient and you're saving money. So it's good for your business. That's the E part. If If you have a diverse workforce and a diverse board, it's likely that you're going to develop products and services that appeal to a diverse audience. Therefore, you will sell more stuff. It's just good for business. Oh, if you have great governance and you operate (laughs) in an ethical and legal way, you're not going to get shut down and go to jail. Like over and over and over, those arguments are losers because the money is all moving in the right direction. And we only need like 20% of people to adopt the solutions before that's just what's on the shelves for Mm -hmm. the other 80%. I don't have to convince 80%. No. But everybody's got to do something. Exactly. And and I can't figure out why, you know, because you talk about this all the time, why it's not covered as business yeah. and economy. Because when you think about like some of the stuff that I saw when I was briefed on some of the agenda items in, in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, I was there when when the president signed it into law at the White House. And we got to talk to some of the people who had worked on some of these projects and how 
how far it goes down into individual things. Like I said, you know, wind energy is profitable. Ask Rick Perry and Texas. They made more money on wind energy uh, than oil, I think, in, in, in a couple of the years that they were that they were really like beefing it up. And a lot of people mm-hmm. got to line their pockets with that. So that seems like a, uh, an incentive for right wing and conservative folks who are, who are focused on the profits. But now that the turbines are going to be manufactured by steel made in the United States and those blades are going to be manufactured here in the United States uh, by labor unions, you know, people working in unions and that the labor secretary was working with the people and the the companies and, you know, the executives and the the corporations and the unions to make this deal. It's like a win-win-win for everybody. And I want to talk more about that business aspect, but I also wanted to touch on something you mentioned about how you know, you only need 20%. Everybody can do something, even if, you know, even if you fly a plane to Brooklyn and then ride your bike around when you're in Brooklyn, like, like yeah. no purity. But somebody put, I think it was a tweet and, and it blew my mind. And I wish I knew who did this, but it's uncredited as many things are on the internet. And they say, when people talk about traveling to the past, they worry about radically changing the present by doing something small. But barely anyone in the present really thinks that they can radically change the future by doing something small. And I was like, wow, bro. <laughs> like I got chills just Mind thinking about blo- that. That's beautiful. That's just beautiful. It, it's so, it, it's heartbreaking to think that way, but it, but we do get overwhelmed by the systems, right? Mm-hmm. It, we are a hundred percent talking about systems level change. And that is overwhelming to contemplate. And that is really why I want to take this very specific approach, which is that not every solution that's in my show, and sometimes there's going to be some real frontier, you know, we talked about hydrogen airplanes, and there's not that much that individuals can do to move that faster necessarily. Fusion. To, you know, fly less. Right, exactly. Fusion, like we got to let, you know, science do its science thing. But we have the power to create the friendly environment for all of this. And we all have the power to do a specific thing. Like the way you solve a problem is you break it down into the component parts. You never try to go all the way to the end of the problem, right? It's like, okay, well, what is the part, what the chunk of this? What's the, you know, if I'm a kid having to write an essay for school and I'm overwhelmed by it, what's the headline? Mm -hmm. What's the first sentence? Mm -hmm. And so I hope that everybody finds a headline or a first sentence or just, a you know, find a shampoo bar, find a... (laughs) a real estate agent who will show you houses that already have solar and batteries. Think about how much you fly and start to put pressure on an airline by taking fewer trips and then letting them know that you're taking fewer trips. Like there's just these sort of small things that I'm not doing everything perfectly, but I'm doing as much as I can whenever I can. And it matters because it's business. It does. Companies pay attention to what people want to buy. It does. And and those kinds of decisions can drive the economy. I know here in California, we buy so many cars that we sort of get to set the emission standards for the rest of the country. And and that's driven by money. That's the the automobile makers like, well, we're not going to sell as many cars to California if we don't, you know, do better on emissions. So we have to do that. So we can drive that. And it's by doing those little things. And I feel like it's also almost like a mental health thing, right? Because if you think of all the problems and you try to like think about how to solve it all at once. It's very, very overwhelming, like you said. And that's what, what I love about this podcast, about everybody in the pool, is it 
gives me something I can handle. Like I do this at home. I'm like, all right, five minute project, right? Like move this little box of stuff I've been trying to get rid of forever. I'm just going to go through this one box of stuff. Yep. But it helps. It's like, it's like when you watch Hoarders, right? You watch that show, they go into the house. It's just an absolute mess in there. It is, it's overwhelming. And that's why a lot of people end up in that situation. And you just have to say, all right, well, I'm going to start at the kitchen sink and just start and just go. Uh, and yeah. if you break it down, like you said, into the into those individual parts, it makes it uh, much, much simpler to deal with. I want to talk more uh, about some of the uh, practices and things that you discuss on the show, but I do need to take a quick break. So I want everybody to stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are talking with the host of the Everybody in the Pool podcast, Molly Wood. And uh, Molly, before the break, I had mentioned that I wanted to hear from you a little bit about other things we can do as with you know business as far as our investments and moving toward venture capital, things like that that can impact the climate crisis through the economy. Yeah, I'm very big on the money part of it. And it is a very interesting phenomenon. I remember talking to an economist after COP26, so not the most recent, but the one before um, in Scotland. And she was saying, you know, it's interesting because so many of the activists and the journalists left COP26 really discouraged, like we didn't make very much progress. But she said the economists and the bankers and the finance people left feeling incredibly hopeful because Mm. the money is now moving in the right direction because risk is an extremely powerful motivator for global finance. And our money is incredibly impactful. So it's not just, you know, it's not just people creating markets for solutions, which is incredibly important. It's also where our money goes. And I am... 100% and pretty shamelessly targeting this podcast at rich people Mm. because (laughs) rich people emit the most full stop and can afford to adopt the solutions that drive down the cost curve for everybody else. So when I, you know, when I look at the, if you're in the top 10 to 15% of earners in America and you're not adopting climate solutions or directing your money in a climate positive way, you're kind of a climate criminal. Like it's on us. Mm. Yeah. Because we fly the most, drive the most, have bigger houses, have pools and fancy lawns, right? It's all of the things that actually do emit. And and when you put that at the country level, it's like a metaphor for countries also. The United States and China emit the most. And so when people look at how they're investing their money, there's a huge opportunity to make a difference there. And it's Everything from, yes, investing in ESG funds or being aware, you know, the first company that I featured on the podcast was a company called Fennel, which is aiming to sort of democratize investing by saying, here's all the actual information that usually only institutional investors get about companies. Mm. So you have these kind of double whammy things happening where people are trying to build the like Robin Hood of more impactful investing. I've talked to companies who are startups who are trying to figure out how to Uh, create different 401k options within companies because it turns out that a company's financial emissions, because they're putting your money to work by investing in companies that maybe are directly fossil fuel companies or have practices that are extremely uh, negative in terms of emissions, that can be like 60% of their overall emissions coming from what's called this financial supply chain. Mm. 
And then on top of that, you have startups, lots of them actually, who are trying to figure out how to connect individual money with renewable energy or other climate forward projects in a way that makes you money, gets you a return. Mm -hmm. So there are tons of like kind of cool little, if you're really into investing, like there's a ton of cool stuff out there. Uh, yeah, I talked to so many people about moving their money into uh, renewable. Uh, that's where the money is going to be. It also puts pressure on the ones who aren't that great, the climate criminals who were like, oh, we're losing investors. Even if you're just appealing to somebody's pocketbook, you know, it's like you should get solar on your house, not, you know, because you want to hug a tree, but it's going to save you $1,000 a month in electric, you know, at your level at the house that you have. And it's going to increase the resale value of your home. And, uh, you know, you'll be able to borrow again. You'll have more equity, and, you know, just whatever it is, the money. It's like the, the money is better now. And, and I love that people are, are starting to follow it. And you mentioned risk. Talk to me about this because I don't know what to do about this. Uh, but there are major insurance companies who now are refusing to insure, for example, homes in Florida and it's going to continue, I believe, as we see more tornadoes and more hurricanes and in some of these more vulnerable states, more flooding. We are going to see them pulling out of flood insurance. Uh, you're just not going to be able to get insurance on your home. How, how does somebody deal with that? Yeah, this is a terrifying development um, in many ways and one that's kind of been long in coming. Like among the other nerdy topics that I get really <laughs> excited about is insurance because that is... You know, you look at the, and by the way, I mean, I think we're up to five insurers who are now refusing to write homeowner, new homeowner policies in California. I'm sitting here in my house in the Oakland Hills wondering if it's dead weight for me. Because of the fires, yeah. Because of the fires, exactly. I suspect, so from the, I'm going to tackle the solution first because that's how I roll. I imagine that there will be, somebody's going to figure this out. Right. There's going to be some other market. There will be some market-based solution. There will probably be state funds that have to step in and insure houses. I just I picture this like high risk insurance solution, like for people who have like their third DUI and they're trying to get their car insured. There's going to be like a high yeah. risk, like the general or whatever that's going to we'll take you, uh, even though you live in California where there's trees. Exactly. And there should be. Because we have been so cavalier about putting houses and entire cities in places they do not belong. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at who's done the best math and the best prediction about what is going to happen with global climate change, it is 100% insurance companies and their insurance companies, the Uh reinsurance companies, right? So Swiss Re is is the name that, if you've heard of any reinsurers, that's usually the one. They have actuarial tables down to the, you know, percentage point of uh, Celsius degree. And they have been unequivocal in saying that this is a massive financial risk, that this is in the trillions of dollars of GDP and that they are not going to be able to afford it. And so I wish they would have done this during the housing crisis and the subprime mortgage rates, which they would have bailed on that. <laughs> right. Yeah. But they said that's not a risk to us because banks will have to pay for it. Too no much money. Deal. Yeah. And the government will bail us out. Wee. But one of the things that State Farm cited when they pulled out, or maybe it was all state, one of those two that as they pulled out of California said, you know, we have two problems here. One is we're not allowed to charge you premiums that are appropriate to the risk of where your home is situated. Like we're looking at historical data that didn't take into account places that are burning now that never burned before or flooding now that never flooded before. So we have to charge you an amount that's appropriate to the risk. And also 
they're getting pressure from their insurers who are having to pay out huge sums of money in Barbados or Europe or places where global warming has already caused weather catastrophes. And so you have this kind of, you know, ecosystem of money moving around and they're starting to feel that pressure. And at some point they're going to say, I'm sorry, Houston is uninsurable. Florida is uninsurable. California is uninsurable. And then you are going to start to see change, right? It's really unfortunate. It could be terrible when I try to sell my house or somebody in Florida tries to sell their house. But it's it's part of the change that's driven by the fact that we didn't do anything for 50 years. Or if there's a gap where you don't have insurance and no one's willing to insure yet, they haven't solved the problem and something happens to your home. You're, yeah. you're just out. And so what what will start to happen, too, is those disasters will strike. And instead of rebuilding over and over and over in these places, like you're seeing happening in Florida, we won't rebuild in various parts of the country and the world. I've I've been wondering about that because people seem to still be rebuilding over and over and over again. (laughs) I just I always thought that that was sort of strange. But a lot of people also can't financially make it hat like the insurance only covers that you rebuild right where you were or they don't have the insurance and they can't rebuild and they don't have the money to move to anywhere else and now right with the the higher interest rates that we have home home purchasing is is pretty difficult and and a lot of places we, you know we have very high you know home prices so it's it's we're also facing a homelessness uh crisis along along at the same time so there's going to be that gap of uncertainty. And that, I think, is what uh, frightens me the most and, and is what prompts me to act in, in any way that I can. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. I, like, I do not want to sugarcoat the fact that there, uh, there will be climate migration. There will be people who are pushed from their homes. There, there already have been. I mean, you could argue that Hurricane Katrina created America's first true climate refugees. People who were Mm. unable to return to that city or who remain homeless as a result of there are people on the streets of Oakland right now who are homeless because of the fires in Paradise, California. Mm -hmm. And that and that we do have to prepare for that, that there might have to be large resettlement funds for places that are destroyed that cannot and should not be rebuilt. And that is all part of the that's why I have a three part strategy for this, which is. Vote, invest, and adopt. I was going to say, that's why we have to make sure we vote vote for the party that will make those funds available and emergency funds available. Because if we have somebody like a Donald Trump in office and we've got climate refugees, he'll just push them into the Rio Grande and, and there will be nothing for them. He might give them paper towels. Throw paper towels at them. Yeah, uh-huh. you're right. Yeah, yeah he yeah. could do that. Yeah. <laughs> it was so hard vote, to watch. People, vote. <laughs> so hard exactly. to watch. Well, let's let's pivot to a little good news. Talk about some of these exciting tech, climate tech upstarts that uh, you mentioned in the show. I mean, I just love this job so much because the the other part of my job, in addition to creating content, is that I do uh, work as a venture partner. I work in venture capital, trying to find and invest in these companies, and it's the most hopeful job in the world to talk to founders who just are doing everything from, this hasn't aired yet, but I interviewed a woman who has created a company that makes reusable gift wrap based on the idea of furoshiki, which is the Japanese tradition of like using beautiful cloth to tie gifts. And so she has this totally sustainable material and you just, you know, give people this wonderful experience and kids love it. And so it's everything from that to 
the company that is creating what are effectively like Nespresso pods of hydrogen for airplanes that can easily be retrofitted to take these fuel cells and then emit only water to 100% nuclear fusion Mm. to companies who are saying, here's a website where you can go and you can find a sustainable alternative to all of the crap that you have in your kitchen. Every single thing you could replace for the same price or less with something that's just better. Yeah. And all sorts of tax rebates and, you know, to take advantage of that. um, I love that you could help help point out. I am super excited about nuclear fusion. I was, uh, I went to nuclear power school for the Navy way back in the nineties for a little while. And we talked a little bit about fusion and uh, we were all just like blown away at the, the, the zero enthalpy, zero entropy, like just pure energy and the safety of it when done right. You know, you don't have to deal with neutron radiation and build six foot uh, shields made out of steel and water and virgin polyvinyl. But we were all just like jaws on the floor when we learned about the potential of, of nuclear fusion. Uh, so that's one, of, that's one thing I am really looking forward to. I am too. And I think we're really close. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we get closer. I mean, I know nuclear fission and you know this, you know this way better than I do is sort of, you know, it's been permanently 10 years away for a long time. Yeah. But we just had a major breakthrough. We did. Exactly. And you have, and I think that there are companies who are privately experiencing the same breakthroughs and not talking about them, right? Because a lot of funding now, venture funding and otherwise has gone into private companies developing fusion. But yeah, like it's so easy for us to talk about how our kids will live in this dystopia And, you know, they'll be uprooted from cities that can't be resettled and they'll be climate refugees. I think there is an equal chance that they could grow up in an energy utopia. Mm. I mean, imagine the problems that could be solved with effectively unlimited energy. Yeah. You don't have enough water in California or Colorado. You can desalinate all the water you need, right? The biggest problem with desalination is actually energy. Oh, yeah. It's exactly. just, it goes it takes on so on. much energy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's the, it's something that's very exciting to, to think about. Like, you know, we would just, we would sit there and we would have conversations about what could, what that impact would have, like the impact of just absolutely, totally un, unlimited amounts of energy that produce no emissions. And I like to think that way as well. And I, that, and I'm, I'm hoping, and I'm, I'm glad that like the big companies, because whoever's first to fusion is going to, be rich beyond the dreams of avarice. So I know that they're working on it. I know they're working on it hard. Uh, I just, uh, I hope it, I hope it comes sooner rather than later. Me too. And I'm believe I'm in favor of fission too. I want good old fashioned nuclear. I mean, really, would you rather have nuclear or coal? Yeah. And you know, we you know? learned in the Navy, I'm, you know, I'm not such a big fan of civilian nuclear power plants, but, um, it's extremely safe. And after 20 years of eight reactors burning 79 megawatts, you end up with the size of a fist of, right. of waste. Um, it's, it's important that you store it and dispose of it properly. But the, I mean, that's doesn't take up too, that doesn't take up a lot of room, but yeah, I, I think that that is the, the gap that bridges us to fusion um, and, and along with wind, solar, all of the renewables, algae. I know everybody's working on that too. We'll see, we'll see how it, we'll see how it ends up. But if you want to stay abreast of all of this incredible tech, you need to start listening to everybody in the pool. It comes out every Wednesday. It comes out weekly. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Molly, can you tell everyone also where to find and follow you on social media and on the internet? Yes, you can find me kind of still hanging on on Twitter. Yeah, me, <laughs> yeah, me too. 
<laughs> at Mollywood. <laughs> uh, and you can find me on LinkedIn also at Mollywood. Uh, and then I'm on threads as Mollywood Pro. Pretty much I'm everywhere. If you just sort of look for, and then, but most importantly also, you will get every uh, update about the podcast and my weekly newsletter at mm-hmm. mollywood.co. That is the one home for all of it. Mollywood.co, that newsletter is priceless. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really encourage everybody to check out your podcast and I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Allison, you're amazing. Thank you. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We will be back in your ears on Monday. Don't forget to listen to Jack this weekend, and I'll have a bonus beans out probably, uh, depending on whether or not I'm traveling somewhere last minute. But until Monday, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG, and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.